Um, I wonder whether we could turn to um, quite two quite short readings. First in Acts chapter 7. Verse 2 and 3. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said unto him, Get thee out of thy land, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then in Hebrews, and chapter 11, verse 8, to ten. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out unto a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he became a sojourner in the land of promise as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for the city which hath the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things make it manifest that they are seeking after a country of their own. And if indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now I think that's a most telling phrase, and often overlooked. Let me read it again. And if indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city. Verse 39 and 40. And these all, having had witness borne to them through their faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight 
and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, we just have a further word of prayer. Now, Lord, we've already asked thee to be with us this afternoon, and we know, Lord, that thou hast a far greater interest in meeting with us than really we have to meet with thee. But, Lord, we pray together, wilt thou take this little time and all our human weakness, both in speaking and in hearing, and transform it, Lord, we pray, into a meeting with thyself. We pray, Lord, that thy word will come to us with such illumination and such living power that, Lord, it will enter into our hearts and lives. Let it be that kind of word. Living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit. Dear Lord, we commit ourselves to thee with thanksgiving because we know that thou hast heard this prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, <clears throat> this morning I spoke about, principally, about divine purpose. The theme of these times is living according to divine purpose. And <clears throat> I spoke, I spent the whole of this morning, talking about divine purpose. What is the divine purpose? What is the objective of God? What is the calling with which all of us who have been born of God are called? If we've been born in this Zion, as we've just been singing, wherever we come from, whatever part of the earth we come from, if our birth is registered in Zion, uh, in the Zion of God, then we belong to her. And things of glory have been spoken about this city. Now we spoke a little bit about that this morning. I said there were three things with which the Bible ended. The bri a bride, wife of the Lamb, a city, a capital city of a new creation of, a, of the eternal kingdom, and service. They shall serve him, and they shall reign forever and ever. Not every citizen will reign necessarily of the, of the kingdom. Not every person who's born uh, uh, into the kingdom of uh, heaven is going to reign. Uh, there are those who are going to be qualified to serve God in various administrative positions, not in some technical, impersonal way, but firstly because of a direct, intimate union with him, such as bride, 
and bridegroom. And then, as uh, fulfilling the will of God, whatever the will of God will be for, the, for eternity, and that we don't know. But whatever the will of God is for the universe and what lies beyond it, it will be in some marvellous capacity, large or small, that we will serve him and reign with him. Now, <clears throat> that's divine purpose. What I want to talk about now this afternoon is living according to divine purpose. One thing to talk about divine purpose and all the rest of it, but it can just be a kind of marvellous ideal, a concept, a biblical concept. It can be a, a truth from the book. But the theme of our times is not just what is the divine purpose or even the eternal purpose of God. The theme of these times is living according to divine purpose. According to divine purpose. Now, I'm interested that when the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and the interesting thing is this, that when God appeared to him, Abraham saw something in the person of God, in the Godhead, which led him directly to the city which has the foundations. He didn't see things. He didn't see the whole of human history unfold before him in a series of epochs or, or phases of time. He saw God. The God of glory appeared to him. And in the person of God, he saw the city of God. It totally transformed his life. I have recently been reading uh, one of the later histories of the Jewish people by a man who is making himself a name for himself now in the whole Jewish world, Chaim Potok. It's called Wanderings. And it is, I have found it fascinating. Unfortunately, it is written from the liberal point of view. But nevertheless, I found it fascinating, his description of the cities of the time of Abraham. Their sophistication, their refinement, their standard of education, the way they imposed uh, upon the whole of the ancient world in what we call the Fertile Crescent, um, a, uh, a, a, a standard of life and education which was just tremendous. And in the mid midst of all that, Abraham was born and brought up. He was not some wandering Bedouin shepherd, used to living in tents moving around the whole time from place to place according to the seasons and the sort of availability of pasture land for flocks. He was a city dweller. He belonged to no mean city. He had a standard of life 
And then, how we don't know, because we d we're not given all the details, at some point, suddenly, there came to him a revelation of God. God confronted him. God met him. And Stephen, thousands of years later, said, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham and said to him, get out. Now the interesting thing is this. If Abraham had had a concept of God, a concept of the purpose of God, and stayed in Ur of the Chaldees, we would have no Bible. Because the purpose of God was that that vision that came to Abraham transformed his whole life. From that moment, he became a different man. His whole standard of life, his whole, his whole uh, uh, behavioral pattern, his everything became different. From living in uh, stone-built houses, he went out to live in tents. From living in one single city, he moved through the rest of his life from place to place. He never again lived in a city. Something happened. And I have often wished and longed that every born-again believer were to see even a little of what Abraham saw in the person of God. He did not see things. He saw God. And when he saw the God of glory, he began somehow to understand that the glory of God was connected and related to a city of God. Somehow he had to come into a relationship with God. Now, the writer to the Hebrews puts it very simply. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, when he was called, obeyed to go out into a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing whither he went. And then it says, for he looked for the city which has the foundation. I want to speak this afternoon on the necessity of a wholehearted response to vision. It is not enough to see something. It is not enough to have studied a matter biblically and to have at least come to certain clear conclusions. The fact is that unless you and I obey God and allow that vision totally to influence our lives, there will be no actual eternal consequence. Now we have to say, I have to say, that the large majority of Christians um, do not live according to divine purpose. They have been saved, and somewhere along the line, either through ignorance or disobedience, 
Somewhere along the line, we are waylaid. The result is that we have an enormous number of uh, uh, spiritual babes. People who've been converted but have never moved. Some who've got great biblical knowledge but no actual practical experience. Abraham went out. He obeyed to go out, not knowing whither he went. Now, I am not saying that God, therefore, would take you out physically, uh, you not knowing where you go, but to every single um, believer, in principle, it is the same. Once we have seen what the, we've seen the God of glory, and in the person of the God of glory, have seen that the glory of God is connected with this city of God. That in some way we have to enter into a relationship with him and with one another. Once we see that, there has to be a wholehearted response. You cannot live on the periphery anymore. You cannot just creep into meetings and sit in the back row. Excuse me, all of you sitting in the back row. But creeping in, this is the normal thing. It, it's an indication very often uh, if you forever sit in the back row. I won't say everybody does. But those who forever sit in the back row, it is in fact an indication of a, a fear of committal. A fear of being in the heart. Fear of really giving oneself totally to what one sees, as to where it might lead us, what it might, the cost involved, and all the rest of it. It's much easier to creep in, as it were, and watch it all, to see which way it's going. You see, we believers are a strange breed. If we've really been born of God, we know that there is truth in this thing, that something tells us that God is in this. So we cannot let go of it. And yet we won't commit ourselves. So we live always on the periphery. The whole of Christian work is, is like this. The gathering, the church life so very often is like this. You will find in every single company of believers a few who are dedicated, a large number who are just as it were. Um, they can't let go and yet they can't commit themselves. Now, uh, I believe that there has to be a wholehearted response once God reveals something to you, or you will have the opportunity to go back. Now, don't think that it will not come to any one of you if it has not already come and you're on your way back. It will come. You have, you are mindful of other things. You begin to say, is this really relevant? Is it really what God wants? What about the price attached to it? You see, this is an intensely practical matter. There is a cost involved. All kinds of practical issues will start to come up once you begin to see this thing. 
So what we're talking about this afternoon is not just some glorious ideal or concept. What we're talking about is your practical response to what God is showing you. If deep in your heart you know that this whole matter of divine purpose is true, if you are even aware, to put it this way, that your questioning or querying of it is in fact a sham to give you time, which many of us indulge in on all issues to do with God. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I'm not really sure. You know, to take the baptism of the Spirit, many people say, well, I'm not sure about it. I'm not really sure about it. Actually, they're afraid to really commit themselves. They say, holiness, really being crucified? I'm not sure that this isn't an extreme teaching. Um, uh, gift? Oh, well, I'm not really sure about it. Deep down in our heart, we are. Deep down in our heart. But we, we, we fight for time. We play for time. We, it's a sham. It's, it's a, a mental thing that's a shock to our conscience. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't give me up. I am coming. But I need time. Now, some people can live a whole life on this basis, where we spend the whole of our lives playing for time. We never actually come to the conclusion. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul sometimes was a little unkind to ladies, um, but um, I think, in, on the whole, he was a champion of women's rights. But in one place he speaks about a certain species of sister who is always going from house to house, ever learning and never arriving at the truth. I find that very interesting. Ever learning. What are they learning? Truth. Well, then how do they not arrive at the truth? They don't arrive at the reality. That's the point. Now, it's not only sisters who do this kind of thing, I must say. Many brothers also spend their time all to their Christian life, ever learning, ever learning, never arriving at the truth. Never coming to the reality. Always getting some new idea, some new light, and yet somehow or other never coming to the substantial. Because we are fighting or playing for time. It's a sham. We're afraid of committing ourselves. We're afraid of being wholehearted. Abraham could have spent another ten years in out of the counties. And the whole story would have been different. But he went out. It's true, he took father with him. He shouldn't. He'd been told to get out of his father's house, so he took father with him. <laughs> he took his nephew with him. He shouldn't really, Lot. No, he was as we say, a lot of trouble to him, um, all the way through, until finally he divided from him. First, God had to see that dear old father died. That was the first step. That way laid Abraham for some years. And secondly, he had to divide Abraham from Lot. Until in the end, Abraham was where he ought to be. But listen, it is infinitely better to obey God and take father and nephew along with you and let God have to deal with these problems that you're taking with you than to stay in out of the Chaldees till somehow or other God removes father and nephew. 
Better obey with all your weaknesses, sins and failures. Take them along with you and let God start dealing with the whole thing as you commit yourself to God. Than to wait in out of the counties till you become clear. You will never become clearer until you obey the light that God has given you. Now, this necessity of a wholehearted response is, uh, a, is really a, a mighty matter for this reason. Now, listen to me. God never pressurizes. He, he never pushes us. Never bludgeons us. He never cajoles us. He, he, on this matter of being wholehearted, God will leave us to ourselves. He will speak once, a second time, a third time. He will arrange circumstances so that we can see the foolishness of disobedience. He can arrange situations so that we see the valuelessness of the life we're living. But he will never bludgeon us. So if you're waiting for God to push you into some wholehearted commitment, you will find that you will wait throughout life. Forty years if the Lord doesn't come, and you'll still be where you are today. Only you will have increased in knowledge in the head. You'll have had a little bit more church routine in your history, a few other things, uh, and so on. Possibly an experience here, an experience there. But essentially, substantially, you will be where you are today. God never pushes people in this way uh, to be saved is one matter. To come to the goal of God or the end of God is another. Uh, I may have to, I'll explain myself on this. You see, God loves you so much. If you want to be selfish, he will allow you to be selfish. If you want to be self-centered, as a saved person, you can be. He will let you be. If you want to take all and give now, he will let you. If you want to hold on to your life and thereby lose it, he will let you. God will have no one at his side as bride who does not want to be there. He doesn't want a bride that he's had to drag through bushes backwards, sort of forced into situations where finally, disheveled, black and blue from beatings, she says, I love you. I mean, it, it's so nonsensical, yet we somehow think that that's the kind of person God wants. None of us want to go the way with God. We don't want to be beside him. We don't want to be with him. If he wants us, let him force us. God can do without you. It's not as if you and I are a 
vitally strategic part of God's plan. God can do without us. He can raise children up from the stones if he wants to. But God is love. He has saved us. He has set his love upon us. And he loves us so much that having saved us, he says, now, in this matter of being the bride, in this matter of being the city, in this matter of serving me, I leave it to you. If you want to have your salvation, all right, you won't lose it. If you want to have your salvation and enjoy it, you won't. But if you think that you would like to enjoy it your way, okay? But if you want to be part of the bride, if you want to be part of the city, if you want to come to the throne, you must go the way the master went. And there has to come into our hearts, Lord, I am willing. Abraham obeyed to go out. He has become the father of all who believe. There will never be a single person part of the bride, part of the city, part of the eternal administration of God who will not know Abraham. Abraham's name, his character, his person is forever introduced into the city of God. <coughs> when Abraham walked out of Ur of the Chaldees, I imagine he had a thousand questions a thousand doubts. I imagine this afternoon that he's undisguisedly thankful that he walked out of earth of the Chaldees. He is now in an eternal inheritance. You will never regret obeying God. You will regret many, many things, but you'll never regret obeying God. I have lived now long enough to have heard many regrets of Christians' voice. I've heard people come to me with tears almost sometimes inconsolable as they have viewed their lives and the mistakes they've made and they're full of regret. I have yet to meet a single believer in any part of the world that I have been who has come to me in inconsolable grief and said, God said this and this to me and I obeyed him and I deeply regret it. All our regrets are because we wouldn't settle issues that God was speaking to us about. We wouldn't be wholehearted. We wouldn't respond fully to him. Those uh, uh, constitute the regrets that Christians have. To obey the law may be costly, may be painful, may be sacrificial at the time. And all the way through, but my word, we know in a deep, deep peace that God is with us and God has taken responsibility for us. Now, 
I want to say this again so abundantly clear to everybody uh, this afternoon. God doesn't want a bride beside his son who's had to be pressurized into that position, who's had to be forced into that position, who's been cajoled into it. Somehow or other he's bludgeoned her and he's got to find a, a wife for his son, as it were, putting it very crudely. And so he has turned the world upside down to push people who never wanted to be there to be beside his son. No, not at all. God is quite prepared if you want to be saved and enjoy your salvation and take everything you can and give nothing. He's perfectly prepared for that. But if you see the reason and significance, the meaning of your salvation, if into your spirit has come the call of God, so that for the first time you begin to understand there's something more than salvation. Salvation is not an end, it is a means to an end. If you begin to understand that this call of God will involve you in cost and in a certain way of discipline, if you begin to understand that, you must respond. God's not going to push you there. You've got to say, Lord, I am willing. Now I'll tell you something. The moment you honestly say, I'm willing, phew, within a split second of time, God will be there. It's recorded. You're caught. Once you've said those magic words, I will. You've had it. As far as God is concerned. There are so few candidates for administration, the administration and government of God, that God goes to the most extraordinary length. Once we've said we are willing to bring us through the whole curriculum through just what he knows we require to fulfill a position in the uh, kingdom. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11, don't you find it amazing? Every one of these people responded. I mean, God didn't push Noah into building an ark. It was the stupidest thing a man ever did to build an ark, a boat, 600 miles from the sea. I mean, really, when you think about it, how nuts it was, especially as it took him so many years to do. <laughs> he responded. God showed him something. He responded. God doesn't ask Abraham to build an ark. This is interesting. For Noah to be in the purpose of God, he had to build an ark. That was at he, in his generation at his time. He responded, and he's in the family. Enoch walked with God. It's interesting, it doesn't say God walked with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. He responded in some way and walked with God. Abraham went out. Moses 
forsook the riches of Egypt, despising them. All of them, it doesn't matter where you turn, you will find the story is the same in all. There was a response. God came to them in their generation and revealed himself to them. And they got some understanding of the purpose of God. Not all of them understood the same, but they understood enough. And then came the crisis. Obedience or disobedience. Prevarication or a following of the Lord. I say again, it doesn't matter where we turn in Hebrews 11, we even find ourselves in it. Because it says in those last verses, and these all, having had witness born <coughs> to them through their faith, received not a promise. God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So in some wonderful way, here we are 4,000 years later, and we're still in the same work of God. We're still in the same movement of God. It began all those thousands of years ago. And really, it's as if God's saying, you know what I did with Abraham? You know what I did with Isaac? You know what I did with Jacob? You know what I did with Joseph? <coughs> with Joshua? With Rahab? With Moses? And so on and so forth? Well, now, I have not finished the matter. I've held it all back so that your coming in may be the substantial thing and then I will perfect the whole. So this matter of eternal government goes right back to the beginning. This is why, I only throw this out just as a digress, but it may help somebody. This is why the city has 12 foundations and we have the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the city has 12 gates named after the 12 patriarchs of the house of Israel. In other words, you have this whole marvelous 24 elders, 12 representing the old covenant, 12 representing the new covenant, the whole government of God drawn from both old and new testament. Now I find that a rather exciting and thrilling view of history. It means that God is doing something with eternity in view. And you and I, if we've been saved, are somehow or other in uh, this. There, we've been saved by the grace of God, introduced into what God is doing. Now comes the crisis. What shall we do? Do we respond? Or do we not respond? Will we obey or will we not obey? Now let me say something about, that I will entitle, the divine faithfulness and the human cost. The divine faithfulness and the human cost. Once we have committed ourselves, totally, surrendered, abdicated on this whole point, and said so we're going to go with God, we're going to go the whole way with, with God, God takes responsibility for us. from that point. Now I'm not saying that God doesn't take responsibility for anybody who's saved, but God takes 
a much more specific responsibility for those who respond to his call. What do I mean? He takes responsibility for your education. He takes responsibility for your training. He takes responsibility for the production of spiritual character in you. Now this can explain a thousand and one things that start to come into our lives. This uh, way of God is not just a glamour way, it's not just a bed of roses, it doesn't just mean that, you know, we go from triumph to triumph and uh, everything is just sort of marvellous, like a Hollywood uh, uh, sort of epic, uh, which we tend to think in our minds. What it means is this, that into your life may come the inexplicable. It, it may not, but it may. Into your life will come difficulties that you never have faced before. These difficulties, these problems, are God's way of producing character. And God's way of training you to reign. Because if you can't get above that now and learn how to reign and rule, how to get the ascendancy, how to be above and not beneath, in these things you cannot know much about divine government in the future. Now there are many, many interesting things about this future and I, we can't enter into them because it would take us far too long but I wonder what it's going to be like. It speaks of nations walking in the light of the, of the city, of, of things that are evil not being allowed to enter into it. Does that mean then that in eternity there will be a darker side somewhere on the periphery? I don't know. It says no more curse, no more death, no more mourning. But whatever way we look at it, life has to be trained, has to be mastered, has to be subdued. You can't have life. Look at the world around us. Uh, we know that the curse brought thistles and weeds and everything else into it. But there is also in this world around us a tremendous amount in the life itself which cannot be just left. It has to be subdued, it has to be trained, it's to be useful. And so I think there we get a little glimpse of what eternity may be like. I don't know. But this I do know. Once we have committed ourselves to the Lord, then there is absolute faithfulness on the part of God. It is not as if God does not understand the past does not understand our weaknesses and our failings. God does. And the amazing thing is this. A person like David may fall to the depths and murder Uriah and commit sin with Bathsheba, but still the faithfulness of God overcomes it all. He repents. But the interesting thing is Bathsheba becomes, I'm not saying that this is a reason for immorality, but Bathsheba becomes the mother of Solomon and Nathan. How do you explain it? It's incredible. When you finally look at it, you, you begin to wonder. Was God behind the whole thing? No, it couldn't be. God is not the author of sin. 
And yet, in some amazing way, here it all is. Was it God's plan that Uriah was going to die anyway? In another way? Just like Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing through deception, he had no need to. God had already predicted that he would be, that the, the elder would serve the younger. And that the purpose of God was centered in Jacob, not Esau. The faithfulness of God is so amazing. Once we're committed, there's God's faithfulness through thick, through thin. And then there is divine grace. In other words, God will not allow the inexplicable and the problem to come to you without a special provision of grace. He is training you, not submerging you under something that will just destroy you. He's training you. He knows exactly how much you are able to take. Exactly how to bring you into a situation where you've got to discover new funds of his grace. New funds of his power. So this whole matter of the divine faithfulness is tremendous. Don't think that God says, now, I want you to will to do my will, and once you will to do it, who you think, will I ever get through? What will happen? God has made all the provision necessary and grace and power for you. And even when you fail, you will find God so incredibly understanding and faithful. He will not condone your sin, but he will be, so, you will find that it is better to fall into the hands of God than into the hands of men. Again and again and again. So once you obey God in this matter, he takes responsibility in a specific way for you. But what about the human cost? Now, here we come to it. Well, I can only say one thing here. The cost is everything. Nothing less. It's everything. You, your time, your career, your marriage, your home, your family, your your everything. The price will never come down. God doesn't bargain on this thing. You say, well, Lord, if I go with you, you take this and this and this and leave me with this and this and this. No. God says all or nothing. You don't have to. Don't feel that you've got to follow the Lord in this way. He will let you stay just where you are, enjoying yourself. But if you really want to go with God, the price is everything. Now, look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
<clears throat> it is an amazing way, isn't it, after having uh, traversed so much in the economy of God that the apostle comes by the Spirit of God to this, what we call the twelfth chapter, and begins summing up everything with these words. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is your spiritually intelligent worship. Don't offer to me just song. Don't just offer to me words. Don't just think that by a few words and a song here and there, that's worship. What real worship is, is to respond wholeheartedly to the calling of God. Now, a living sacrifice, that's not exact when you think about it. When you divest it of all its sort of biblical paraphernalia in the sense that we're all used to living sacrifices, a lovely poetical phrase, really. But you know, living sacrifice, when you really think about it, it's all blood and death. Not exactly a nice thing. Have any of you ever seen an animal sacrifice? I tell you. It's not a beautiful sight. Blood, death, fire. Is that what God requires of me? My head off? <laughs> and then the whole thing consumed in smoke? Oh, what a waste. Me? I think that's a waste of life. <laughs> Oh, living sacrifice. What a cost. My career, my degrees, my qualifications, my talents, as well as all that's rotten, all that's beautiful and good and noble, gone up in smoke? No, Lord, surely not. Surely the only thing that should be burnt out of me is all that's ugly all that's sinful, all that's base, all that's selfish, selfish and self-centered. No, it's a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Oh dear. So this isn't just an initial sinner coming to Jesus. This is somebody saved by the grace of God and justified, made holy and made acceptable. So once we're saved, we offer the whole thing up on... Yes, yes, that's right. There's no spiritually intelligent worship. Do you see the word is the most beautiful word, spiritually intelligent worship? It's something you'll find a different rendering in all the different versions because it's such a difficult phrase to translate. But it means worship that has been reasoned. You don't just suddenly respond in emotion and say, Oh, yes! Wonderful hymn, marvellous choir, great preaching, and here I am, Lord, forever yours. God isn't taken in normally with this kind of emotional response. He knows very well that tomorrow we take it back. What he wants is spiritually intelligent worship. You've counted the cost. You know what the will of God is. You have dim ideas of what it may cost. Now, some of you are very afraid of the cost. I know it. I've been that way myself. And I'm quite sure that there are lots here, in, if we're honest, probably the majority of us, that have got deep sort of uh, fears. 
Do you think God would mean that I shall have to be like a nun? You don't think God thinks I've got to be a monk? You don't think that perhaps all the joy will go out of my life? I might have to go to some God-forsaken spot of the earth? Oh, no. Or maybe, maybe I've got to stay in that ghastly job. Oh, I can't think of it. Because at the back of your mind, you've always been thinking of that job as an in, just a little bit to endure. And then you're going to blossom and come into something that's going to be a marvellous fulfilment of your God-given qualities. So we think of this little bit of chore-laden time as being only just a little to endure. But deep down, when we hear something like this, we, we have an uncomfortable, funny feeling. Maybe God wants me to stay in... No, no. Now, I want to tell you something about these fears. Don't suppress them. Face them. There's no other way through. Don't suppress them. You see, most Christians sing a hymn and forget them. They want, they want to have lovely, joyful little times where everyone can talk to And then we go out there, I've, I've been delivered from it. Oh. No, 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 just wait. We are so incredibly made as human beings that in our spirit there is a thing called intuition, even in men. Yes, there's such a thing as intuition in men. It's not always as apparent as it is in the ladies. But it's there. Now, this intuition that we have in our spirit often has discerned possible costs. You will never come through from running away or seeking deliverance. Face it. They're the lions that can't harm you. Once you've said, I'm going through, I'm going to be a monk. I'll have to be a monk. If I'm going to be a nun, I'll have to be a nun. If I'm going to stay in that grotty old job for the rest of my life, I'm going to stay in that grotty old job for the rest of my life. I've faced it, Lord. If it's out of order of the Chaldees, out of order of the Chaldees. If it's in order of the Chaldees, in order of the Chaldees. Wherever it is, I face the fear, Lord. I'd rather do your will and be there than do something else which isn't your will then you will suddenly find that many of these lions have, they're toothless. They can roar, but not bite. And you'll be a different person after a while, because you suddenly discover that God, the devil's greatest weapon is fear. And once you've faced those fears on their deepest and fullest level, you come through. So, listen to what the Apostle says. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritually intelligent worship, and be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ah. That's the second thing. First, living sacrifice. Secondly, there can be no living sacrifice unless we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Be not 
fashioned, listen, be not fashioned according to this world. Half the problems you are facing and half the problems I am facing are because I'm being fashioned according to the cultural context of my world. Fashioned, moulded, manipulated. We can't help it. We are all children of the age in which we live. But somehow or other, we come into these... And this is all our problem. For instance, to understand the predestination of God and the foreordination of God, and that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will, was not hard in the 15th, 16th century. Because everyone lived in a culture that accepted that kind of thing. Today, we find it very hard to really accept authority because we're living in a kind of democratic structure, more and more. It's very hard for us. Well, now what it says is this. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's in the mind that we have all the problems. Why don't we do the will of God? It is so logical to do the will of God. If God really loves you, then the logical thing to do is to do his will. But this isn't so, is it? We have often very big problems over doing the will of God. Why? Because of our minds. Our minds are cast in a certain way. They're moulded in a certain way. We find it very, very hard. Sometimes God has to take years and years and years simply delivering us from a mentality. Now, you're young. It will be very, very interesting if the Lord tarries to see what happens to you all in ten years' time. If there was such a thing as a reunion, possible, it would be extremely interesting. Some will have lost all faith. You mark my words. Some will have lost all faith. Their lives will be a shambles. Full of regret, full of sorrow. Some will be precisely where they are today, only in ten years' time. Still querying, still questioning, still arguing, still up and down, Forever unable to let go, and yet forever unable to commit themselves. The usual Christian disease. And there will be those who will have committed themselves wholly to God. There will be some stories to tell. Deep ways, costly discipline, inexplicable things, but lives transformed. It's a very sad thing when you meet a Christian who is precisely the same as they were three years ago, four years ago, or ten years ago. There's nothing static with God. However many faults a person has, it is a delight when you meet someone who is more like the Lord, though they don't know it when you meet up with them again. Something's happened. There's more life, greater flexibility, greater readiness to move with God, and all the rest of it. <clears throat> well, I mention these things because I think it's interesting when you come to the third point, 
The first is a living sacrifice. The second is be not fashioned according to, the, to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So only the Holy Spirit can renew your mind. And here's the third thing, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Why don't I, why cannot, do I have such problems over doing the will of God? Because I do not find it good, acceptable or perfect. Nor can I why I'm not a living sacrifice. And when I don't know what it is to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. God's will for you is good, acceptable and perfect. You will learn that in 20 years' time, positively or negatively. You will learn in 20 years' time, either by having done the will of God, that it was good, acceptable, and perfect for you. Or you will discover that having not done it, it would have been. Do you understand what I mean? Negatively. Many Christians learn negatively in the end. Oh, if I only trusted God! I had a deep suspicion that maybe I shouldn't go that way. But I wanted it. And I went it. And now look. If I had only listened to God. But such is the strength of our will and the strength of our natural character that we won't. We sometimes have to learn the bitter way. Now you know there are some very interesting things when you turn, but I won't, I'll only mention it. But if you, those of you who want to follow this matter really carefully, in Philippians chapter 3 and from verse 5 to 14, you have the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He speaks, he speaks of the human cost. He is not speaking about salvation. For instance, he speaks about knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. He says that he longs that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not the resurrection of the dead, but the resurrection from the dead. He speaks of laying hold on Christ for that which I also have been laid hold on. All these things, it's very interesting. If you compare chapter 2, from verse 5 to 11, you find there you have the Lord Jesus, who being on an equality with God, did not think it something to be grasped at, but emptied himself. It is very interesting that the apostle has to go the same way. Oh, nothing like the Lord Jesus, but a pale reflection. He, he says, all these things I counted so costly, so valuable, I've had to count them as rubbish. Now, what do you really think the Apostle meant when he ends in Philippians 3 and verse uh, 13 and 14, Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before. I press on toward the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. High calling of God in Christ Jesus. The goal. 
unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So it's not salvation, but it's a prize. Well now, to bring all this to an end this afternoon, There is a price to be paid. You will get nowhere till you pay the price, nor will I. We can spend our days questioning, querying, investigating. It's not that God doesn't want us to investigate or explore or search out matters. But God demands obedience first and illumination comes second. When God reveals something, we have to respond in faith. Then God starts to do something. How wonderful that word is, I expect most of you know it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. That's wonderful, isn't it? We are to work out our salvation. Doesn't mean work it out in our head. <laughs> it means work it out in practice. Realize it. Fulfill it. And when we positively start to obey God, we find God is in us to will. Is there anybody has a problem over willing? You say, oh, I want to do the will of God, but I don't know, something holds me back. Well, now just come to the place where you can exercise your will. You have to say, I will. You'll find out afterwards that God was in it. God is working in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So let's draw this to a conclusion. There has to be a twofold commitment. What is the twofold commitment? The twofold commitment is this. First of all, there has to be a personal devotion to God, to Christ. This is fundamental and essential. If it was only a matter of somehow or other just committing ourselves to one another, we might possibly find it easier. I don't know. But the essential and fundamental thing in this whole matter is not that you are committed to Halford House, not that you're committed to some company of Christians here, there, or somewhere else, that you're committed to some teaching, some doctrine, some movement. The first absolute necessity is that you are devoted to God. Now, there can be no real church life till you are yourself, I am myself, devoted to the Lord Jesus. Until that's so, there can be no further moving. Church life becomes a sham. Family life unless you and your husband, your husband and you, are really devoted to the Lord, 
You'll never get anywhere. There will always be problems. It's the same with business life. Your devotion in your career or your professional life, whatever you like to call it, your workaday life. You see, the problem with us all, not all of us, but I mean problems so largely in Christian work, is that we have secularized certain things and made sacred other things. In other words, when we meet together, that's sacred. When we go to work, that's secular. This is foreign to the Word of God. Your classroom, as far as God is concerned, is home, family, business life, workday life, as well as church. The whole thing is part of the divine education. Now you cannot get anywhere till you are personally devoted. So the first response is not that Abraham said, Oh, I've seen the city, I've seen the city. The first thing was this, he obeyed God and went out and sought, secondly, for the city that has the foundations whose builder and architect is God. So the first thing is personal devotion. That's what God's asking of you. Asking that you would respond to him wholeheartedly and fully. The second thing is a corporate commitment. You cannot be part of the bride, part of the city, part of God's administration, unless there is some kind of commitment to those others who are in him. And that boils down to the fact where you are living. Very easy to say, oh, I'm committed to the people of God, I love the people of God, and float like a butterfly all over the earth. I mean, this won't get you anywhere. In the final analysis, it is a committal to corporate involvement where you are living. Now, if that is so, then the routine of church life, and there will be routine, and the chores of church life, and there will be chores, are as necessary part of your training and discipline as those high peaks of excitement and revelation. Furthermore, this must have some effect on a whole lot of other things. Where do we live? What job will we get? In Christian circles, it is a very common thing to put job first, home second, and fellowship last. We find a job, we search around for a home, then we look for some living fellowship or Christian group. It's interesting in the old days, everyone had to pitch their tent with the tent flap, the opening, toward the tabernacle. That was the central thing, the dwelling place of God. That everybody found their position, somehow or other around it, toward God. This should be with us. We, once we begin to see the city of God and to see the significance of the purpose of God, it's going to affect us materially. It's not just going to be in the head. It doesn't mean that you never move, that you don't live somewhere else other than Richmond. What it does mean is this, 
that a cost is involved. And this is where God will test us out. Very, very easy to sort of bend principles, compromise on things, say, well, there's this or there's that or the other. Can't be done. If, first of all, there is a, a commitment to the Lord Jesus, to God, and secondly, there has to be a corporate commitment, then it must involve us in a certain cost. Jobs. Where we live. The standard, perhaps. Years ago, many, there would have been no work at Richmond if a group of those had not seen something and decided before God that they had to commit themselves to the Lord and to one another. This meant a drop in standards of living. It meant that folks would have to live in small, shabby apartments instead of moving out to some new town, new area where they could get a whole home. Now someone will say to you, oh, but why didn't they do that? Surely they're the Lord's. They could have been used to lead other people. Yes, there would be no building together. There would be no real pioneering of a way that put us in Um, I wonder whether we could turn to um, quite two quite short readings. First in Acts chapter 7. <coughs> Verse 2 and 3. Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said unto him, Get thee out of thy land and from thy kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then in Hebrews and chapter 11, verse 8 to, to 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out unto a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he became a sojourner in the land of promise, as in a land not his own, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for the city which 
hath the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For they that say such things make it manifest that they are seeking after a country of their own. And if indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now I think that's a most telling phrase and often overlooked. Let me read it again. And if indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Verse 39 and 40. And these all, having had witness borne to them through their faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, we just have a further word of prayer. Now, Lord, we've already asked thee